everyone. I'm delighted to host Dr. Shashi Tharoor on Network Capital. He's written the second bestseller of the year, uh, The Battle of Belonging. The first was Tharoorosaurus that all of you got to read and enjoy. Uh, this is the second one, Dr. Tharoor, congratulations. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, <laughs> they're both behind me. Not sure they're showing up on the picture, but delighted that uh, I can talk to you about them and about The Battle of Belonging today. So, Dr. Thrur, you managed to write uh, this book in three and a half months, and this is your second bestseller of the year. How did that even happen? Like, talk to us about the discipline of writing a deeply researched book, a deeply referenced book in, in three months. Well, first of all, it, it's not just three months, because I'm reminded here when you ask this question of something I really witnessed myself years ago when I was based in Singapore and I was invited to a live demonstration by a Chinese brushwork artist. And he sort of unscrolled painting with his brushes. And after three minutes, he said, it's done. And somebody said, how much? And he said, $25,000. And the lady gasped and said, $25,000 for three minutes? And he looked at her with a very grave expression on his face and said, three minutes, madam, and 45 years. So in other words, it was all this experience that had gone into being able to do that in three minutes. So first of all, this is a subject I've thought about and read about and, and churned over in my mind for a very long time. Uh, the issues of nationalism and patriotism have always engaged me. I read Tagore and Orwell on the subject in my college days. I reread them again later in adult life and then again once more for this book. Um, and of course, I also decided to do a little bit of original research during the summer and delve into some of the scholarly studies of nationalism so that I wasn't completely out of sync with what the academic eggheads were thinking. And then I wrote and I tried to write every single day, which wasn't easy because the lockdown wasn't actually a period of idleness uh, for MPs, as some people think, because Parliament wasn't meeting. Uh, I had an enormous amount to do for constituents who were stranded around the world and around the country and who wanted to come back. And there were evacuations to be organized. There were permissions to be brought. There were calls to be made to the foreign ministry and the, um, <coughs> the civil aviation ministry. Unfortunately, both ministers were friends of mine and were incredibly helpful. So a lot of things got done. And bringing in assistance to my constituency, which I'm proud to say I initially did a lot of, um, but then uh, the prime minister took away the MP funds uh, and put the wall on his PM cares instead. So we weren't able to do as much of that. I got some donations, though, to come in. And altogether, I have to say, it really was um, an extraordinarily interesting, challenging time for me. But still, I, I carved out some time. It was two hours some days, three hours some days, very rarely much more than that out of a very busy but in that time, I, I wrote in a sustained frenzy. And that's where perhaps my other excuse has to come in. I, I, I sometimes joke in words that I don't claim credit for because it's uh, uh, A.J. Liebling, the American historian, who famously said that I write faster than anyone who writes better and I write better than anyone who writes faster. And sometimes <laughs> I feel I can lay claim to that as well. So I did write a very briskly uh, during this, this period of daily writing. So three months and 45 years, safe to say. <laughs> well, maybe at least 40 years um, since my, uh, my early 20s, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe 45, actually, since my, my college days, my late teens, you're right. Um, so, Dr. Tharoor, this book is dedicated to Kanish Kanishan. There's an interesting story about Ishan that I thought I'll tell you uh, when, as we start this discussion. So at Wharton, uh, one of my uh, classmates was a Pakistani-Canadian, Hassan, who went to college uh -huh. with Ishan. And uh, uh, we were trying to essentially reach out to you at that time to invite you for a keynote. And he said that, hey, I can, uh, like, he, I went to college with him. He was my dorm mate, roommate, one of them and I can reach out. And then he was telling us about uh, the fawn tales in New Haven. So Pakistani-Canadian uh -huh. guy telling a bunch of Indians in an American school about, uh, 
you know, how to get to an Indian MP at that time. So <laughs> That's wonderful. And that too, um, Ishan is somebody who um, I have to admit, in many ways represents um, uh, uh, part of the challenges I've had in grappling with whole notions of national identity and patriotism. Remember, I worked for the United Nations and I stayed Indian throughout my life wherever I was posted, which included Geneva, Singapore, New York, and of course, traveled around the world. And my children uh, were therefore brought up to be conscious of their Indianness. Um, from the age of five, they were enrolled in the UN International School in New York, which is the kind of school where there were children from all over the world. So when they came to, to class at the beginning of the year, they were asked to talk about which countries they were from, draw their country's flags. Uh, on special occasions, they dressed in their country's clothes. So we weren't, even though we had an international life, we didn't bring our children up as foreigners. They were brought up as Indians who happened to be living abroad. But then, of course, as they grew up, in their case, both of them lived from the age of five onwards in the U.S. They went to high school and college in the U.S., they had to make some choices about where they would live and work. Initially, both went abroad. Ishan joined Time magazine in Hong Kong. Kanish joined Open Democracy in London. And each of them, after a few years, came back to America and to New York, which was the city they loved the most of all. And each of them uh, now has working lives in America. And each of them fell in love with and married uh, women with American passports. So what do they do when they choose their long-term future. How can I, as an Indian, expect them to hold on to an Indianness inherited from their ancestry that no longer corresponds to the practical realities of their daily life? And, and so I've written in my book about how Ishan um, became the first member of our nuclear family um, uh, to, to choose an American passport and, and how I struggled with that choice. Uh, while accepting it rationally, uh, I, 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 I suffered a few pangs viscerally. The mind and the heart didn't react quite the same way. I've come to terms with it since, but it was something I've written about because in this book, I've gone very personal for the first time. I don't tend to use autobiographical details in my writing very much, but in this book, I really do talk about myself, my own experience of this dilemma, and my children's choices uh, at later stages in their lives. Yes, and as you know, Dr. Sarur, my partner is uh, both French and Lebanese. Uh, and we often discuss, uh, you know, how a French and Lebanese adjust to an Indian way of living in a different country altogether. But or uh, vice versa, you may be doing or the vice, adjusting. <laughs> or, or, or vice versa, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely both ways. Um, but the question we struggle with is why is belonging a battle? I mean, at least for myself or for Ishan or for Kanishk and for even for you, like it doesn't seem to be a battle or is it? Well, look, I mean, uh, the, the, the title of the book reflects a particular debate that has arisen in contemporary India. So while the first hundred pages of the book talk about nationalism, Indianness, belonging and so on, the theory, the the, the concept, the evolution of the concept of nationalism worldwide from the very origins of the term to its application and experience. Then I talk about India's uh, anti-colonial nationalism, which converted itself in a process marked by three years of passionate debates in the Constituent Assembly into the civic nationalism enshrined in the Constitution of India. And then from there, how we went into 70 years of lived experience of this nationalism. And then finally, the challenges to this nationalism from an alternative idea of nationalism uh, in the last six years, in particular, from the BJP. And the battle going on now between two schools of nationalism, I'm summarizing very simply, but in my first 100 pages, when I describe the different kinds of nationalism in the world, I end up in, very, in a very simple taxonomy saying, basically, there are all sorts of nationalisms whether it's uh, you know, linguistic, territorial, racial, ethnic, religious nationalisms, which are anchored in the immutable things that you acquire at birth. In other words, right. uh, identity-related nationalism. Uh, I, for shorthand, I call it ethno-religious nationalism, ethno-religio-linguistic nationalism. But basically, these all anchored in identity issues, things you can't help being because you got them when you were born, for the most right. part, versus 
civic nationalism, which is a nationalism not anchored in identity, but in constitutions and institutions. A nationalism that requires liberal democracy and that regards people as equal, irrespective of identity. So in a civic nationalist setup, it shouldn't matter what your race is, your religion is, your color is, your language is, your address is, your region is, etc. All those barriers that exist in the other kinds of nationalism. But in civic nationalism, you just have the same rights as everybody else under your constitution and you expect to live according to them. But that was the nationalism India practiced for almost 70 years after 1947, or 67 years if you really want to be nitpicking. And then arose a different idea that said, no, this is ill-founded, it is conceptually wrong, it is ideologically irrational because a nation is not a territory called India and all the people on it, as the constitution seems to assume. A nation is actually a people and the people of India are the Hindu people first and foremost. And everybody who doesn't fit in as a Hindu person is here only as a guest or an interloper and will survive on the sufferance of the Hindus. And the idea, therefore, that India is intrinsically and should once again become a Hindu Rashtra, this idea is diametrically opposed to the civic nationalism of the Indian constitution. So there's your battle. What is the India to which you belong? Because I talk about patriotism as being simply love for your country the way you love your mother, because it belongs to you and you belong to it. Just as she belongs to you and you belong to her when you talk about your mother. And that sense of belonging is anchored in that possessiveness. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or a Hindu. It doesn't matter if you speak Punjabi or Malayalam. It doesn't matter if you're a Jat or a Sikh or a Dalit. Ultimately, whoever you are, our constitution grants you the right to feel the same sense of belonging and enjoy the same rights over this India that you belong to. Hindu Rashtra, Hindutva movement says no. And that's the battle of belonging that's going on right now. Dr. Thru, your book is not available outside India yet, but a lot of our- It will be uh, readers, next year. Yeah. yeah, a lot of our readers got a chance to familiarize themselves with your writing and they posed questions. And I think as mm -hmm. and when they read, I think that the first hundred pages are really important. Although it's, it's uh, not easy reading, like one has to spend time, take notes, but it's really important to understand the next uh, five sections, I feel. So I, did that take you the most amount of time, the first hundred pages to write yeah, in the book? Absolutely, absolutely. Because I was not only grappling with ideas that I understood instinctively or had arrived at from my own reflection, I was also trying to read, digest, and convey as simply as I could the ideas and thoughts and scholarship of academics. Because, you know, my view, and I, I did something of the same with the era of darkness or inglorious empire when I talked about the British. I said, I have my views, I have my ideas, I know what I'm going to say, but I'd better be sure that what I say doesn't sound silly or elementary or even plain wrong to those who've been working on the scholarship on this field. And therefore, right. what I did feel I needed to do was to delve into it. And in the case of nationalism, there's an astonishing amount of scholarship. So there was an enormous amount to read or read through. Sometimes flying through a book meant you didn't have the time to read every word because there were so many books and so many words, but you tried to capture the essence, dipped into certain chapters, certain sections, uh, looked up things that were referred to in scholarly articles and analyses by reading those articles and analyses, then came back to the books themselves. It was that kind of process. And what I've yeah. tried to do for you in 100 pages is distill a complex set of ideas that um, cumulatively would have probably involved 100,000 pages. So that essentially is why that took me the most amount of time to both read, distill, simplify and explain in, in I hope, a coherent way. Absolutely, Dr. Thurur. Um, you know, there's talk about anywheres and somewheres in the first 100 yes. pages as well. So, uh, I mean, that's not, That's not a scholar. Right. Yes, so, right. so, yeah, I mean, this is a this is a man called David Goodhart, who is a British journalist. And Goodhart essentially argues that there is, if I can use the word battle again, there is a battle going on uh, between um, two kinds of people uh, whom he summarizes and describes 
as the anywhere, as the cosmopolitan's comfortable anywhere in the world, flitting between business class lounges and five-star hotels, the votaries of globalization, if you like, who thought of themselves very often as citizens of the world, versus the somewheres, and that is those who are rooted in a place, in a land, in ethnicity, in a religion, who have their own local assumptions, their own traditional prejudices. And Goodhart said that the somewheres have won because the somewheres can claim an authenticity that legitimizes their right to represent their peoples in all their true essence, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their hatreds. Whereas the, the cosmopolitans, the anywheres, don't really, according to people like Theresa May, who, who articulated this very bluntly, um, they have lost that because what, what, uh, what Theresa May famously said is, if you think you're a citizen of the world, you're really a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what citizenship means. And that is, uh, of course, Theresa May didn't last very long as a prime minister of Britain, but I don't think that her successor, Boris Johnson, would disagree with that because they're basically saying that you have to understand, you elites across the globe, you people networked by capital or by the internet or by business <laughs> or by whatever, you people <coughs> don't understand that you don't have enough in common with the people down the road from where you live because you're associating with uh, people far away in other corners of the globe. The truth is the people who live down the road, the people they employ, the people they pass on the street, the people they eat with and marry and, and date and drink at the pub with, those are the people of the somewhere category, right? And so if you think you're a citizen of the world, then you missed out on all these people who are citizens of here, now the real people. That was the implication of what she said. You're a citizen of nowhere if you don't associate with these people instead associate with those. Now, I actually disagree with her good heart because I think honestly, personally, I didn't go into this in the book, but I think personally that you can be both. You can be right. very rooted in your home village or your home city or your para if you're a Bengali or your Mohalla if you're a, a Lucknowi or whatever, while at the same time having the capacity to be comfortable anywhere else on the globe. And many young people today in, a, in an era of relatively easy international contact, travel, internet communications, and so on, I would feel probably that they, they are both a citizen of their homelands and a citizen of the world. So let me nail my colors to the mast against the Theresa May and David Goodhart's belief. And I think a lot of millennials uh, will agree with you, uh, no matter where they come from. Uh, but you do talk about a subscription-based model of belonging, and I really subscribe to that uh, philosophy, where you can belong to multiple identities. But in Ishan's case, it actually becomes personal with you, right? In, in Ishan and Anish's case, because uh, uh, you can't enforce a certain way of thinking. They made a choice which was uh, perhaps they felt both Indian and American, but they had to choose because India doesn't allow multiple citizenships. But in, That's in, right. and in Ishan says this, and, and I've quoted him in the book, right? He directly says, had dual citizenship been permitted, I would never have given up my Indian passport. But because India doesn't permit it, even though America might have, I, I, I had no choice. That, that was his explanation. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go on. But essentially, uh, I just wanted to build on this uh, fact that na nationalism is, a, as you argue, a relatively recent concept. Even in Arthshastra, when you're explaining, there is no concept of a nation. So let me ask you simply, um, what is the origin of, like, why is this important today in, like, you know, like people going about their lives? Why does this... Uh, become such an important feature? Is it a distraction philosophy or as Yuval Noah Harari says that, is it a shared fiction that we all need? Or a dream we all agree to dream, said Salman Rushdie, which is another clever way right. of, of saying the same thing really. No, I mean, I, I think nationalism matters simply because it is a unit of identification and of allegiance uh, for everyone in the world today. Even the United Nations that I worked for for 29 years is a body made up of sovereign states, many of which consider themselves nation states. Conflicts have occurred between competing nationalisms. Nations go to war over nationalism. Um, so for us to pretend that nationalism doesn't matter would be absurd. And that's why I would argue nationalism, nationalism is important. Uh, at the same time, 
whereas I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of civic nationalism, I have profound doubts about the other kind of nationalism, the, the, um, the nationalism of, of, of ethnicity and of identity, because the honest problem with that is that it often can be seriously divisive, and I might say damaging and hurtful. I mean, we all know that, that um, a nationalism, for example, being promoted by the ruling party in India today is a totalizing vision that excludes those who don't subscribe to it, that demands allegiance, that brooks no dissent. And, and you know, I, I've made a distinction in the book, by the way, between patriotism and nationalism, because yeah, I say a patriotism perpetual oh, okay. All right, well, I'll leave that for now. But let me just say that with nationalism, um, that these guys talk about, um, they mean something exclusionary, aggressive, and sectarian. Uh, and I think I think that has to be resisted because it is a negative thing. I mean, ethno-religious linguistic nationalism is negative because it, it it overrides the individual in the demand for an allegiance to this larger idea of the nation, uh, which is not an inclusive idea and which is not not necessarily a democratic idea either. Uh, Dr. Tharoor, um, your dad had a really interesting adventure in Paris, right? Like uh, trying to find his way and you talk about it in the book. Uh, I had like 20 takeaways for it, but tell us why you included it in the book and what is like, what as a child or when you were listening to the story, what did that, that made you think of uh, India, France, UK and uh, the journey back to India with your folks? Well, first of all, I think the story was fun in its own right, though obviously I was using it to illustrate this whole business of linguistic nationalism. Uh, the French uh, are particularly proud of their language and indeed their culture, but here we're talking about language particularly. And when my father, um, 19 or 20 years old, fresh from India, studying in England, went over to, to, to Paris for a holiday, got lost and tried to ask the way in English, he was completely spurned by the French. It's just a couple of years after the war that the British had helped them win, for God's sake, God liberated them from alongside the Americans. But the French apparently would just ignore him and walk past. So my father realized that the problem was not him. The problem was the language he was speaking. So what did he do? He stood on the street corner and with many gesticulations, asked people directions in Malayalam, which is his mother tongue. And, and when they realized he was speaking a language no one understood, but he was lost and he was moving his hands here and there and pointing to, I don't know, the name of the place he'd written down or whatever. People were, went out of their way to help him because they saw him as, a, as an outsider needing help. Whereas when he spoke English, they said, you know, if this guy can know one foreign language, why doesn't he know ours? What's he doing in our country? So that was the, that was the story. And as you said, there can be multiple takeaways from that, including about how the French were both linguistic chauvinists and at the same time very generous uh, to, you know, authentic strangers, how cosmopolitanism has its limit because cosmopolitan is only welcome in some societies if it embraces their version. In other words, uh, I know the, the warmth of the reception I get when I speak French in France or to French people because immediately, I mean, um, uh, it, 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 it sort of gives them an identification. So that kind of cosmopolitanism is fine. But a true Frenchman would not consider me cosmopolitan if I spoke to him in English. He'd yeah. consider me some sort of uh, uh, a backward person and somebody insufficiently civilized. So all of these things can come in. But that, that wasn't really the point of the story. There is a, another story about the French that doesn't involve my father, which is about assimilation. Because during the French colonial period, uh, they tried to teach little Africans and Vietnamese and so on that they were actually French. And these kids studied from textbooks nos ancêtres les Gaulois, you know, our ancestors, the Gauls, uh, which, of course, who were not the ancestors of the Vietnamese uh, or the Senegalese, but whom these kids were taught to think of as the ancestors of their civilization. Now, no Indian under the British Raj ever felt empowered to say I'm British. Not one. He might be extremely Barasai, he might have studied English, he might have passed exams at Cambridge or Oxford, he might even have married a white woman. He was still an Indian. He was still a subject of the British Empire. Today, of course, there are brown Britons who can call themselves British. Not true in, in those days. And those are some of the issues of assimilation and nationhood that also came up during the imperial period. Well, I can just say that don't miss part one, including to uh, understand the difference between heaven and hell. 
which is illustrated through a phenomenal joke, which uh, you must read the book to <laughs> to figure out, unless Dr. Tharoor wants to share it right away. But uh, yeah, that. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that if you give me a second, I can try and find it because unfortunately, the problem with these jokes is that um, they're really. I have it. I and have it. Serious. I thought. If, I, I can I share it with you. You know, heaven is a place where the police are British, the cooks are French, the engineers are German, the administrators are Swiss, and the lovers are Italian. Whereas in hell, the police are German, the cooks are British, the engineers are Italian, the administrators are French, and the lovers are Swiss. I mean, it's obviously sending up the stereotypes, both positive and negative, on both sides of the story. It was phenomenal. Uh, well, moving on, uh, Dr. Tharoor, tell us... Um, does history sometimes teach us the wrong lesson? And uh, has it taught us the wrong lesson about nationalism? Well, on the first part, I would say, yes, it does sometimes teach us the wrong lessons. And one of the wrong lessons we learned, for example, was that because the British East India Company had come to trade and stayed on to rule, and they had oppressed us, exploited us, taxed us, drained us, essentially looted us for 200 years, that you have to be suspicious, therefore, of all foreign capital. Our national leaders really believe that if, if, these, if any foreigner came with a briefcase saying, I want to trade with you, you should be suspicious of them because they really intend to conquer you, loot you, and drain you. Right. And that suspicion of international capital is what led our nationalist leaders to learn the wrong lessons of history, to throw up the protectionist barriers, to resist foreign investment, to keep, unfortunately, much foreign trade out, and India, as a result, sank to an infinitesimal trading nation, forgetting that its earlier history, from the days of the Roman Empire onwards, we had been a major trading nation, accounting for a huge percentage of global GDP. We lost that, and we instead learned the lessons from the 200 years of colonial exploitation, and, and therefore set ourselves back in many ways economically. So I do believe that protectionism and moving away from trade and denying foreign investment was a classic example of learning the wrong lessons from history. It was learned for good reasons. We've just come out of 200 years of colonial exploitation, but because they were the wrong lessons, it set us back. Now, have we learned the wrong lessons from nationalism? I would argue no, because nationalism in India's case was actually for 100, or not 100 years, but say 70 years, was purely anti-colonial nationalism. We're Indian, you're British, you have no business ruling us, get out. Now, that's your classic anti-colonial nationalism, which includes elements of ethnicity, ethno-nationalism, which includes uh, religion. Because, for example, if you look at the 1857 uh, revolt, which the British trying to disparage as a mutiny, you had the Muslims and the Hindus and the Sikhs in many cases, but not all the Sikhs, fighting against the Christian British. So, again, you can, have, you can say some nationalism had a religious element as well. Uh, then you have... Um, uh, 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 a revolutionary fervor, uh, Bhagat Singh, Kudiram Bose, all of these people. Uh, and then you had also, if you like, a moral sort of uh, nationalism that Gandhiji tried to preach. All of these things are subsumed in the term anti-colonial nationalism. But we didn't learn the lesson that that's the only kind of nationalism for us. Instead, there was a serious constituent assembly that debated what our nationalism was all about. One person even stood up and said, since Pakistan has now been created as a country for Muslims, shouldn't we declare ourselves to be a country for Hindus? And this was thrashed out. And the founding fathers and mothers in the Constituent Assembly said, no, we are freedom struggle was for everybody and we must create a nation for everybody. And they wrote a constitution that enshrined that idea, that said that it doesn't matter what your race, your religion, your caste, your gender, your region, your language, any of those things are, if you're Indian, under this constitution, you have the same rights as everyone else. And that civic nationalism shows we didn't learn the wrong lessons from national history. Now, today, some people who have learned the, the wrong lessons, in my view, from the past, and it's not really so much their desire to assert that some sort of pure Vedic India should be resurrected today. It is also, in my view, the concern that many of us will express that they have actually got a distorted idea of, of Indian civilization. Uh, they claim that it's the, the civilizational idea of nationalism they're harking to when they talk about the Vedic past. The fact is Indian civilization has evolved for 2,000 years plus since the Vedas, 
were concluded. And we've gone through influences from all over the world, including from Islam and for that matter from the British. And what Indian civilization today is, is a very cosmopolitan hybrid entity. And that's the civilization that includes a respect for difference, religious difference, political difference, and other kinds of difference. So I do believe they've learned the wrong lessons from that kind of history. But they also, by clinging on to an ideology, the Hindutva ideology, that was born in the 1920s, when fascism and ideas of racial purity and racial pride were, were at the heyday that gave birth to fascism and Nazism and so on. At that time, Hindutva was born. And very often the supporters, by the way, of Nazism and fascism came to India and supported Hindutva, uh, uh, which is something that people sometimes are not aware of. I just want to say that this idea of, uh, of, of, of uh, misreading history can be attributed entirely to one side in the battle of belonging, and that is the side today represented by the Hindutva movement and sadly also present in the ruling party of our country. As I understood that uh, civic nationalism and patriotism can be used interchangeably, uh, am I right? Mm, well, that may be that may be a stretch too far. I mean, I would say that nationalism is of two types of which civic nationalism is one. Civic nationalism embraces um, a number of important elements, including a sense of, of liberal constitutionalism, which can only be sustained by democracy because constitutions are upheld by democratic institutions which everyone can play a part. But actually, good and bad nationalism can both involve elements of patriotism. The only difference is patriotism is about loving your country, is an inclusive idea. I have often explained that patriotism is about loving your country because it is yours, because you belong to it, it belongs to you. The way you love your mother, it's not really about ideas of nation, it's, it's from the heart, not from it's the not mind. It's not cost-benefit analysis, it, it is there. No, absolutely not. The way you love your mother without claiming she's perfect, you may realize that your country is dirty and dusty and poverty-ridden and inefficient and corrupt or whatever, but it's your country, so you love it. That's patriotism, right. which is not the same thing as nationalism of any sort, because nationalism um, is often centered on symbols of the state, the passport, the flag, the government, uh, the borders, all of these ideas that go into nationalism, which are not necessarily essential. Now, both involve, of course, standing up for your country. In fact, I say very often the simple difference between a patriot and a nationalist is that a patriot is prepared to die for his country because he loves his country, whereas a nationalist is ready to kill for his state. And that is a very important difference because nationalism right. is often an aggressive idea that is positive against other nations. A patriot doesn't care what you think. In fact, a patriot accepts that somebody else will be patriotic about her own country. Why shouldn't they be? Why shouldn't you love your mother the way I love my mother? And similarly, why shouldn't you love your country, if it's a different one, from hers, as she loves her country? So that's that's the distinction between patriotism and nationalism. It's really not the same thing. And I think but as people... Your nationalism is often made up of a lot of local patriotism. So there's no harm in that, too. In a country like India, which is so diverse, when Jawaharlal Nehru is moved to tears by Lata Mangeshkar singing, I have my vatan ke logo, uh, that's a, an indication of his patriotism, but it's part of his nationalism as well, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And it, towards the end of the book, when you talk about Haldane and your very interesting professor, which we shall discuss towards the very end, um, you talk about and give very solid references that critiquing your country or critiquing your government doesn't necessarily mean that you're being anti-national. But uh, no, I think it's actually the highest form of, uh, of, of patriotism is to criticize your government when you think it's wrong, as I often yeah. do think our government is wrong. Yeah. Um, Dr. Tharoor, um, what is the narcissism of small differences and how does it apply to the whole idea of uh, this nationalism, patriotism construct? It's actually a Freudian concept, um, which um, I first heard about because I'm not normally sitting around reading uh, a lot of Freud. Um, I think that the, the, the narcissism of minor differences that people focus on the things that divide them when the real differences between them are actually quite minor. And I heard it because in the former Yugoslavia, where I was dealing with the peacekeeping operations at that time, what happens is that the Freudian idea, the group identities take on a certain rigidity 
when the difference between these identities is actually very trivial. That was Freud's concept. That is something, you know, Freud said that small differences between people are heightened, magnified, and sometimes weaponized when people are actually quite similar or inhabit spaces close to one another. And that the more similar or closely related people were, the more likely they would be to amplify their small differences. Just to show they're not like, you know, I'm not like you. Yeah, you're Indian, I'm Indian. You know, I'm South Indian, you're North Indian. You're this, I'm that, I'm, I'm vegetarian, you're non, whatever. That kind of thing. So <clears throat> that is narcissism because there's a pathological self-love involved, according to Freud. And it's linked to a dislike and loathing of the other. Um, <clears throat> the other group was similar, but different from one's own. That was a whole Freudian idea. And because you disliked and loathed them, sometimes you conducted violence against them. So this came up when I was dealing with Yugoslavia, because here you have the Serbs, Croats, Bosnians, Slovenes, etc., who are all descended from the same Slavic peoples who settled the Balkan Peninsula in the 7th century AD but who became distinct identities or sub-identities because of history. So those who were under the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, retained their Orthodox Church uh, practice, as did those um, who, who had managed more or less to keep themselves separate from the Ottoman Empire. Whereas those who came under the Austro-Hungarian Empire mainly became Catholic. Those who were under the Austro-Hungarian Empire wrote their relatively common language in sort of Serbo-Croatian like Hindustani, if you like, was written in the Roman script in the Catholic Austro-Hungarian domains and in the Russian or Cyrillic script in the Orthodox uh, Ottoman domains and so on and so forth. So there were these relatively minor differences. Of course, the Bosniaks then converted to Islam, which the others didn't. So religion also came in. And these groups were ethnically the same for the most part, though obviously over centuries, some other kind of marriages may have taken place to some degree. But basically, they're all... Slavic peoples, they ended up slaughtering each other over what divided them rather than celebrating the unity of what they had in common. And that's why the narcissism of minor differences became an issue. Now, I'm sorry to say that very often this kind of thing arises in societies that are tearing themselves apart. In our country, for example, instead of celebrating all, whether it's geography, whether it's history, whether it's civilization, whether it's experience, whether it's politics, whether it's cricket, all that unites us and makes us feel one. Some people in our politics are busy highlighting the differences amongst us, making people who do not conform to Hindi, Hindutva, Hindustan feel somehow different and inferior, and thereby focusing on what divides us, the narcissism that Freud talked about, except in India, you could argue these may be major differences rather than minor ones. But anyway, they're focusing on those differences rather than on what unites us. Uh, you make it clear that this book is not an elegy. You're still very hopeful about India and uh, you're just like highlighting some, uh, some things that people should be aware of. I find this uh, statement really interesting. Indian nationalism works in practice, but <laughs> does it work in theory? Tell us more about that. Okay, well, I did say that the book is not an elegy and certainly not a dirge, is what you sing at a funeral. I don't, I'm not ready to bury India's civic nationalism. And I, my book argues essentially that we need to wrest back India's civic national, for India's civic nationalists, the India that the advocates of Hindu Rashtra have been undermining and even seeking to transform. So that's the argument about elegy. But coming back to the question that, that you asked, if you look at Indian nationalism in theory, you're looking at uh, the classic theories of nationalism, where really in many, many places, people said that a nation consisted of people of the same ethnicity, speaking the same language, worshipping in the same faith, living in the same area, etc. So, I mean, even till a few decades ago, you would say that a German, by definition, is somebody who is white, Christian, spoke German. A Frenchman, by definition, somebody who's white, Christian, spoke French, etc. I mean, these, these are all the same with a Dane or same with a Swede, whatever. These were seen as fixed, immutable identities that conflated ethnicity, religion, language with nation. Right. So in terms of the theory, people of the same religion or ethnicity speaking the same language, living in a common space in one state, that was your nation state. And India didn't fit into that because we had, God knows, how many languages? We have 23, the constitution recognizes. But uh, if you just count the languages spoken in our country, 
um, that are spoken by more than a million people that are 35. If you count all the dialects, it's something like 22,000. I gather the latest census came up with a different number, but whatever it may be, we have thousands of languages and dialects in our country. So we're not a linguistic nationalism. We have every religion known to mankind, with the possible exception of Shintoism. So we are not a religious nationalism. We have uh, every ethnicity because we have, over the years, had the blood of every people mingling with us. We had invasions uh, uh, from, or migrations, if you prefer, from all over the North, Central Asia, from the Northwest, what's today Iran, Afghanistan, from Europe, from China, and the Northeast and South. Uh, we've had movements within the countries. There's a lot of, lot of miscegenation. So there's certainly no racial uh, uh, unity that can be spoken about. Uh, uh, the territory of India itself, uh, Bharatvash, defined by the Himalayas and the sea, has been hacked by the partition of 1947 and then the subsequent creation of, of Bangladesh. So you can't talk about territorial nationalism. So if you go through all the classic theories of nationalism, India doesn't fit in. And yet we've held together very well for 70 years. In the teeth, by the way, of many foreign analysts who said that India was facing imminent disintegration. They said it in 47. They said it about every 10 years thereafter until they stopped saying it because India, through its own experience of democracy, free elections, cooperation, uh, and indeed of coexistence among these different groups, proved that indeed there was simply no question of India disintegrating. So to my mind, the fact that we can challenge all the theories of nationalism and that we can still be this wonderful country uh, that calls itself a nation, that's something that I believe we can all celebrate. I'm leaning to show you the book behind me because it is, after all, the, 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 the book that we're here to talk about. That battle of belonging, therefore, is not, I think, um, one that I'm prepared to concede. That's why no elegy. I think we'll still win that battle. This book is a great argument of, you know, why uh, the India, the nation, uh, the nationals of an idea uh, still has so much potential, but this hasn't been an easy battle, has it? Even when we came to came to being a, in this uh, modern nation format, uh, the democracy was not a given. Ambedkar, in fact, went ahead, and you quote in the book that he called democracy a, a top dressing on a soil that was fundamentally undemocratic. But Dr. Thurur, I would love to understand where did Ambedkar's skepticism come from, and did you at being any a point? In from being a Dalit. He said, you know, because the Dalits had been oppressed for so long uh, and for nothing other than their accident of birth as Dalits, that he felt this was a fundamentally undemocratic social hierarchy. And he, he was right, therefore, to say that this is fundamentally undemocratic and we have to move from this into a more democratic system, which is one of the reasons why, as a Dalit, he felt um, a certain amount of bitterness towards a caste dominance uh, of the upper caste and particularly the Brahmin community uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the history of, of social injustice in India. That's why he said it. But I would argue with you that democracy uh, was deepening in every respect since that constitution was adopted formally on the 26th of January 1950. We have seen a great entrenching of, of social change. I mean, who could have imagined, for example, for 3,000 years before that, a Dalit woman uh, ruling as chief minister of Aryavrat, of, of, of India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh. And yet Mayawati has done it not once, but three times. Uh, who could have imagined that the largest number of statues in the country after those to Mahatma Gandhi, that of a Dalit, Dr. Ambedkar himself. Who could have imagined that the, the one kind of crime that is absolutely not forgiven by our judiciary, uh, whenever a case is brought to it, is indeed hate crimes against Dalits, even if social prejudice is entrenched in certain, certain places, particularly certain northern states in the rural areas and so on, we still have incidents of atrocities against Dalits. You can't tell me it's the same as it was 70 years ago, because in fact, we have seen Dalits rise to positions of prominence and dominance, President of India, Speaker of the Lok Sabha, um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Dalits have been able to find honor and recognition through our democracy in ways that I think Indians can truly be proud of. Got it. Uh, you talk about the fact that uh, an India denies itself uh, to someone can eventually deny itself for everyone. 
Tell us what's the way to counter it. Like the last section of the book is like has some measures that we can do, including but not limited to free institutions. Uh, but the fact is that uh, it is denying itself to some people in your view. So what should be the response and what's the way to make it more inclusive if there is something that we can do right away? Well, I mean, I, I will say that that if you were to look um, very honestly at, at that sentence, I believe that in many ways there are people in our government today who are trying to deny the privileges of Indianness to people of one community to start with, and that is the Muslim community. Not only the CAA, which for the first time introduced a religious litmus test by saying that you, if you come in as a refugee from a neighboring country, you can be fast-tracked to citizenship unless you're Muslim, which is really an awful thing to say. Similarly, uh, the accompanying and linked threat by the Home Minister that he would conduct a nationwide NRC or National Register of Citizens in which documentation, which most Indians don't possess, by the way, a startling percentage of Indians do not even have birth certificates available. So... Uh, documentation would not be required of those exempted under the CAA, but would therefore by default be required only of those Muslims who can't prove that they were born in India. All of these things raise fundamental questions of if you deny India to Muslims today, you could deny it to Christians tomorrow, to um, uh, trade unionists the day after, to... Uh, because uh, we're all minorities. Thereafter, because we're all minorities in India. And in fact, even... Um, uh, even in the great sort of majority community, to use a phrase favored by the less hardworking of our journalists, the majority community itself can be sliced and diced into minorities. Because if you're a Brahmin, for example, uh, and you, you think you represent the, the majority of 80% Hindus in India, or once you look at your caste, only 11% of your fellow Indians are, are Brahmins. Well, for that matter, if you're an OBC, they're not a majority of the Indian population either. If you're a Hindi speaker, they're coming close now to half the population, but that's about it. If you're from Uttar Pradesh, you might be fooled into thinking that you speak for the majority. But come to Kerala and you'll see that um, you'll see that a lot of people who don't look like you or sound like you or eat like you or dress like you. Come to Tamil Nadu, come to Mizoram, come even to Punjab. So all of these things suggest that the country's diversity, which I have always seen as a strength and Gandhiji saw as a strength, and Nehru celebrated and the Constitution celebrates, that diversity is being disparaged by those who want to have a narrower idea of Indian nationhood and of belonging to that. And it's summarized in the slogan, Hindu, Hindi, I beg your pardon, Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan, which obviously excludes a whole lot of Indians uh, who have as much right to claim allegiance to the Indian nation and the allegiance of the Indian state to their interests as any Hindu, Hindi-speaking Hindu should have. How about Patel? You talk about him in, uh, at some length in the book. Was he of the same view as well? Broadly speaking, yes. I, I, think, I think there is a tendency on the part of the present ruling party to try and appropriate or misappropriate uh, Sadat Patel uh, to their side of the, of the debate. I don't think that's true. Yes, he, he did uh, you know, have a, 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 shall we say, a fairly different view from uh, Pandit Nehru about the, the sort of secularism uh, of all Indian Muslims. But he, first of all, totally um, spoke for their rights to remain in India and urged them to do so. He enjoined upon Hindus to protect and safeguard Muslims, especially those who wish to remain and allow them to remain. And I've, I've given a numerous examples of this. Um, in fact, he personally went to the Nizamuddin Dargah in Delhi at the height of the partition riots and offered mm -hmm. prayers there to show to Muslims that their religion had a place on the soil of India. He went to the border of Punjab where there were slaughters taking place as trainloads of Muslims going to Pakistan were being massacred on the trains. And he begged and pleaded with the Hindus and Sikhs of Punjab not to do that and to let people pass unhindered. He came back to, um, to for example, in Delhi, he actually, where he found that people could not be protected because perhaps some of the police had themselves been infected with the communal virus, he herded them into the Red Fort for protection and he ordered police from Pune and Madras to come to Delhi because he felt they would be untouched by the sort of uh, 
passionate fervor that infected the Punjabis. Now, all of this does not suggest somebody who would share an, a, a pro-RSS or pro-Hindutva view uh, uh, of, 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 of uh, Indian identity and of Islamic, uh, of Muslims' place in it. What is more, the important thing about uh, Sadar Patel is that when Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated, he delivered an absolutely scalding statement about the RSS having created a climate of intolerance, and he banned it for two years. And he was only prepared to unban it when they said they'll give up politics and remain only a cultural organization. So very difficult, in my view, to kind of kidnap Sardar Patel for the disreputable purpose of making him a Hindutva icon. He was not. Got it. Um, Octavio Paz says that uh, between oblivion and memory, I mean, you've just given us a lot to think about. Um, how do you deconstruct uh, Paz in the Indian uh, sense today? Well, you know, he wrote that we live between oblivion and memory. And a lot of my writing, uh, Utkash, has been about memory and oblivion, how one leads to the other and back again. Uh, if you look at my novels, for example, what is Riot all about? Uh, it's about what you choose to remember of your history. It, it's actually set in the initial riots around the Ram Sheila Pujans, uh, leading to the Ram Janmabhumi movement and the destruction a few years later of the Babri Masjid. In our country, the past is used by some to haunt the present. And a result of that is that the cycle of violence goes on, uh, spawning new hostages to history, ensuring that future generations will be taught new wrongs to set right. And that's why I, I quote Octavio, Octavio Paz, uh, because uh, we can't allow our memory, our history, uh, to actually come up and challenge the feelings of the people um, of our country uh, who obviously do not want to be obliterated or to be attacked or to be marginalized even because of other people's versions of the historical past of our country. Uh, I might add that, uh, that, that, that I hope we can move beyond these concerns, but right now this is very much part of the battle of belonging is a battle over history as well. Oh, definitely. We can see it um, from the textbooks to um, to the parliament. Should the modern India be a tolerant India? Is tolerance enough or is tolerant aspirational? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a fan of Swami Vivekananda. And I've often said that he told us uh, that he was proud to speak on behalf of a faith that had taught the world not just tolerance, but acceptance. And that, I thought, was a very interesting distinction. I read it as a teenager, thought about it for years, turned it over in my mind. And I've written about it at greater length in my book, Why I'm a Hindu. But I do briefly mention here, because for me, the interesting thing is that when you really think about tolerance, and we're all brought up to study tolerance as a good thing. A tolerant king is a good guy because he lets other people you know, practice their own faith or have their own beliefs or whatever. That's what tolerance is. And I'm not saying tolerance is bad. It's good. But it is at bottom a rather patronizing idea. Because what does tolerance say? That the tolerant person says, look, I have the truth. You are in error, but I will magnanimously indulge you in your right to be wrong. Whereas what Swami Vivekanand says we ought to be all about, that he says Hinduism is all about, is that we say, I believe I have the truth. You believe you have the truth. I will respect your truth. Please respect my truth. And that is the principle of acceptance, not just of tolerance. And I argue that it's the best possible prescription for living together in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society that in our case also happens to be a democracy where you do have to accept that people will disagree with you. And you don't dismiss them therefore as anti-national as some people in our present ruling establishment do. Fair enough. Now, Dr. Tarur, tell us the difference between Thali and Khichri. <laughs> well, my Thali is actually now a quarter of a century old idea. I've been using it in speeches in America, and then I put it into my book, I think, India from Midnight to the Millennium, which is now 23 years ago. But what I, what I was trying to say is very simply this. I, was, I started talking to American audiences and saying to them, listen, you guys think you're a melting pot? Fine. We're not. If I'm telling you about India, we're not a melting pot. We're a Thali. We're a collection of different dishes in different bowls. Because we're in different bowls, we don't necessarily flow into each other on, the, on that plate, but we belong together on the same platter, and we combine on your palate to give you a satisfying repast. 
That thali idea of India allows you to have your own identity and to enjoy your own identity and to celebrate and be proud of your own identity. But you can only do that because you are subsumed under the sheltering carapace of a larger identity, the identity of being Indian. That's the thali idea. Now, the, 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 the Kichli idea is, uh, is sort of the, 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 the Mohan Bhagwat RSS idea. The Thali idea can be summarized in the slogan, Unity and Diversity, one of the cliches of my childhood. The RSS Hindutva idea is, no, 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 no. You might, you know, if you look at a Kichli all stirred together, you might have an aloo piece here or a, or a, or a chunk of uh, gajar there or, or a green chili sticking out of the mix. But basically, you're all one kichdi and ideally a saffron kichdi. In other words, we are all Hindus. And yes, you might have a, 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 a sort of Muslim Hindu or a Christian Hindu there, but they all have to acknowledge that at bottom, they are Hindu. Their ancestors may have had the mistake of made the mistake of being converted, but we are all one. That's what you might call the accepting diversity in unity rather than unity in diversity. And that's the big difference between me and the RSS or the, the Mohan Bhagwats of this world, because the RSS folks would say, we are at bottom united in this Hindu civilization, in this Hindu religion and culture. Some have lapsed, so they'll stick out like a piece of aloo or a piece of garden. But the truth is that they are one Hichdi, and it's all saffron in color. Uh, I don't buy that. I still think we are a Thali. And I think that the more we try and force a Thali into becoming a Kichdi, the greater the danger will destroy the meal. Dr. Thru, I have one minute left, but there are many questions. I was wondering if you have a hard stop or do, can you go on for another 10 minutes? I do have a hard stop, I'm afraid, at 8 o'clock. So let's have one quick question. I'll run a minute or two late, but no later. Okay, super. So um, when you talk about, when you conclude the book, you talk about shared sorrow. Why is shared sorrow so important to India? And if you can, if you can squeeze in, Please tell our listeners about David Baker, and then. Oh, okay, Th those are two um, unrelated uh, themes. Actually, um, uh, I, I spoke about memory and oblivion, and I meant to quote when I was answering, but it slipped my mind at the time. Ernest Renan, the great French uh, thinker, sociologist, theoretician, who made a speech called "What Is a Nation" in 1882, that's still considered a classic in terms of nationalism and the theory of nationalism. And one of his pithy observations, by the way, he, he also said that one thing that's important for nationalism is to forget. He says, if you keep remembering all the atrocities that your people have done to each other, you'll never be able to forge a nation. So the massacres in the Midi, he says, have got to be forgotten for a French nation to be born. And similarly, uh, you know, you need to forget partition uh, if you want to create uh, a, a united sense uh, of, 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 of Asian-ness or whatever. I mean, we're not a nation, so that's a different example. Pakistan and India were partitioned. But let's say that, that you have to forget some of the atrocities in your history. Let's say the, the Sikhs have got to forget at some point the massacres of 84 uh, in order to celebrate their oneness with the rest of India, uh, just as perhaps one day uh, many Muslims will have to pardon what has happened to them in this period in order to sh share once again in the adventure of Indianness. So forgetfulness was one of Renan's ideas. The other idea was that a nation citizen must have a shared joy, a shared sorrow and a shared dream. And of the three things, he said a shared sorrow was the most important. So a shared joy is when you have something you celebrate in common. A shared dream is when you can look forward to a common future, a certain aspiration. A shared sorrow is important, the most important, he said, because if you cannot cry together, you are not a nation. Now, I think that's important for all of us in India because the COVID pandemic has revealed many fault lines in Indian society. And if you take just one example, the plight of the migrant workers, to which so many in positions of privilege and the political establishment and the urban elite and so on were indifferent, you can really question, did we share their sorrow? You can say the same about the demonization of Muslims, about the, the, the sufferings of poor and unemployed, the daily wage workers who lost their jobs. What about the Kashmiris who suffered a lockdown within a lockdown? Um, in many cases, you could give example after example of which some people suffered and others were indifferent and argue that Indians do not have this vital ability to cry together, this ability to have a shared sense of sorrow. And my friend Harsh Mandar wrote a very powerful book five years before COVID, 
a book called Looking Away, subtitled Inequality, Prejudice and Indifference in New India, in which he wrote with passion of the indifference and lack of sympathy of our middle classes, our aspiring middle classes for the less fortunate. He described the Indian rich and middle class to be among the most uncaring in the world. And then while COVID was happening, he wrote an op-ed, which I read, in which he said, listen, will we recognize the abject collapse of our moral center? When will we learn the lessons of solidarity, equality, and justice? And that reminded me of what Renault had said, and that's why I, I came up with it, because if we are truly going to celebrate our nationalism, let's also share the sufferings of our fellow Indians. On David Baker, it's a different story. David Baker is uh, an Australian academic. Um, well, I shouldn't say he's an Australian because he's no longer he's an Indian now. <laughs> he's now an Indian, exactly. But David was my block tutor at uh, Mukherjee East in St. Stephen's College when I joined it in 1972. And David Baker uh, was an extraordinarily interesting man because he was actually born in Australia, grew up there, but decided to specialize in modern Indian history. And he actually wrote uh, 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 the sort of standard work, the classic work on the rise of the nationalist movement in the central provinces and Berar. <coughs> and David, um, uh, having done all of that, came to India uh, to do his research, wanted to stay on in the country, but he needed a job to pay the rent, as it were, took up a teaching position at St. Stephen's College. Uh, and they said, well, you know, you're an Angres. How can you teach modern Indian history? It'll look very odd. This is 20 years after independence. I said, no way. So you teach British history. He said, I don't know British history. Said, it doesn't matter. You, you're a white person who teaches that. But he, he had the courage to take that task on because he wanted to live in India. And soon enough, he was doing his own research in modern Indian history, living at St. Stephen's College, mentoring students like myself and generations to follow me. Uh, and, 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 and doing his own work in modern Indian history while applying to remain in India and become an Indian citizen. So the fact is that uh, that he um, uh, was given the runaround by our bureaucrats, you know, what our Indian authorities are like. He told me they treated me as if I was trying to smuggle myself into heaven. And it was their duty to throw up as many obstacles as possible. And then he chuckled and told me it was only my persistence that made them give up. And he, uh, after many years, and you know, he used to take a bus. He was a very simple man living very frugally take a bus each day to the secretariat to come and fill in his paperwork and make his case and so on. And, you know, that was an era in which an Indian passport was an inconvenience, not a badge of pride for many people. With an Indian passport came foreign exchange restrictions, limited international travel, very hard to obtain visas to foreign countries. Many who were entitled to an Indian passport would have gladly changed places, Dr. Bacon, so I take mine and give me yours, you know. But he persisted. He, he um, um, after many years of application, he became a citizen of India. And I asked him, you know, why do you want to be an Indian? Uh, he's now in his 80s, by the way, and he's still um, living in Delhi. Uh, uh, he never chose to retire to Australia, as some Indians have chosen to do since this time. And his reply was very simple. I feel Indian. He said, it's the country I love. The place whose history matters to me. The nation whose aspirations I share. It's India's people I love. It's where I'm most comfortable. I might add he's made uh, history-conscious Indians out of many of us. So I, I can well understand that. So he said, I wouldn't dream of anywhere living anywhere else. And I felt I should confirm this is where I belong by taking on the passport as well. And I, I conclude my book by arguing that India must always remain a country that appeals to people like him. I've told a different story of my friend Ansar Hussain Khan, the first yeah. uh, Pakistani to pass the examination to join the United Nations after Pakistan's independence. Who though, as he, he was 22 at the time, but as he grew and thought about it and saw uh, international diplomacy at work, he said, I'm not Pakistani. I don't believe in all this bigotry of the two-nation theory. I want to belong to India. And it took him 20 years of fighting for an Indian passport, and no one could believe a half Punjabi, half Pathan, um, a Muslim from Lahore University and a Pakistani UN official wanting to be an Indian. Why did he? You know, he could have instead applied for a visa and come to visit. No, he wanted to feel Indian, that allegiance was important. And then I mentioned J.B.S. Haldane, the great British scholar, and frankly, a celebrity scholar who acquired Indian citizenship rather late in life. It was only a few years before his death in the early 60s. Um, and, and people were so astonished by his choice and they hailed him as a citizen of the world. Uh, but he said, there's no world government, so I can't be a citizen of the world. I am a citizen of India. This is a white man and a fairly British, prominent British uh, figure. 
I am a citizen of India and I can be a nuisance to the government of India because that is the duty of a citizen to be a nuisance to his own government. And he said, the government of India has the merit of permitting a good deal of criticism and, 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 and India is much more diverse than Europe. So I feel comfortable being part of it. Uh, rather than being part of, say, one one ethnic country. So he actually was, without using the phrase, he was celebrating the civic nationalism of India and describing that as his nationalism. So someone like me who has spent the last dozen years having come back to India from a lifetime, adult lifetime of working abroad, I've become, uh, I've taken the patriotic duty of being a nuisance to my government very seriously. Uh, but I hope that in the process, this book will help many people to understand why that's a useful thing to do and will help us win the battle of belonging for those who reassert and rebuild the civic nationalism in which our constitution embeds the idea of India. That's why I've written this book and I really hope that after this conversation with you, many more people will read it. Thank you. It will, Dr. Thur, I promise. Battle of belonging, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Dr. Thur. Really grateful for your time. Great seeing you all. All the best. Jai. Bye.